You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, you strike me as someone who likes to go places, likes to see things. Well, I'm a traveler, I think, a little bit. I do get very restless when I'm cooped up, even in my town for too long. I think you know I don't I don't have a car. And yeah. so I get every I get everywhere by walking and biking, which is a challenge in North Texas. But I get if I don't get out of town and see other places, then I get really restless. And so I one of my favorite things to do is just visit other cities, but I really like not just like the big cities everyone goes to. I like to just visit all kinds of mid-sized cities. It's that's kind of you like the mid-sized ones. Mm-hmm. Like, what yeah. are some mid-sized like mid-sized cities you've been to? Like Pittsburgh is that what we're talking? You know, Pittsburgh's on my list. I actually haven't been to Pittsburgh. That's one of the few. And I'm I'm a, from a mid-sized city, so maybe that's where my affinity comes from. I'm from Tulsa. A lot of people, you know, think it's small. Um, one guy I remember said, "You're from Tulsa. Not many people can say that." I was like, "Like just a million. <laughs> so, but yeah, so I think I always appreciate kind of mid-sized cities and different places, but I like to travel, you know, we, we do, I'm a, I'm a, you know, so, social study, former social studies right, teacher. Right, right. Cares so about. you like so I do, places I do the museums. I, I yeah. go to the historical sites, of course. What are some historical sites you've been to? Like, what are some, uh, what are your takeaways from some of these places? Well, I think, I think one that we've never talked about before that's interesting is I went to the actual, in, in May of 2004, I went when they unveiled the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. So when that came about, and we went because my, particularly my stepmother's dad, he, when he fought in the war, it was just such a big part of his life. My sister wrote a book, a memoir about his time in World War II. So, so this yeah, is a new story. Fa- our whole family went and it was a really, I think Tom Hanks spoke, if I remember right. And and so that was, that was really interesting to see what the memorial meant to a lot of people, right? Why they wanted it to be remembered. And so that's an, that's a particular event in memory. And in fact, as, as I talk about it, I've, I feel like I need to talk to my family and see what they remember. Cause it's been almost 20 years since that happened. What were some of your takeaways? Like what, how were people experiencing that you noticed? I think I think, of course, there's a sense of, you know, importance to serving in World War II for a lot of people, right? And so it's just a central defining moment of their lives. And so I think when you're there and you're recognizing that moment, all of a sudden you attach that importance to those people too, right? Like I all of a sudden, people who could have been walking down the street and I don't see, you know, you now associate them like they must have fought. In World War II, I wonder what their experience was like, right? And so I had a real curiosity and also a bit of awe, like as a, you know, as a bit younger at that time, but just wondering about people's experience. So certainly the commemoration and the unveiling of of the World War II Memorial just made me more curious about understanding the events. That's neat. What about you? Do you have similar experiences or are there museums or commemorative sites that have been meaningful, meaningful for you? One of my favorite places that I <laughs> I spent a week at or a couple weeks in Mount Vernon. And on the way one time I stopped off at like Washington's Crossing. And like I just kind of sat there with a book. Actually, I was reading a book about Washington's Crossing, and I just sat there with my feet up, just kind of like experiencing this park. And it was really this really kind of like surreal moment. And then I took a bike on the path that they um because I had my bike with me. And so I thought it'd be kind of fun to like bike through the path that they took. I'm like, oh, this might have been where George Washington's horse fell down and he had to like carry it up. I don't know. I was my geek little tour. I think I hit Valley Forge on the way back. But I, I think my my experience at Washington's Crossing was, I don't know, I think it was a little more special. I mean, Valley Forge was fine. You just wanted to ride a bike just like they did in the Revolutionary War. <laughs> well, I think... I, I think it's it's really important, you know, to think about how we remember the past. Of course, that's what a lot of social studies is. And, you know, thinking of commemoration is something that's really important. David Blight has written a lot about that in regarding, you know, the U.S. South and sites of remembrance. And but I don't know if it's like a topic of like, you know, we've talked about museums a bit on this podcast, but I don't I don't know if it's a topic we've really like talked about is is what commemoration means to different people in different places. So. 
It's something I'd like to learn more about. You've brought people with you today. You know it. Oh my goodness. Tell us, who did you bring? So we are happy to welcome to the podcast, James D'Amico, Lauren Leibarger, and Eddie Brudney. Thank you all. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks, Dan, Michael. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. We're so excited to have you all here with us. Do you mind, before we get into the, the main attraction, do you mind telling us a little about your background? Yeah, tell us a little who you are. Who is Eddie, James, and, and Lauren? Well, this is James, currently a professor of literacy, culture, and language education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Indiana University in Bloomington. I'm a former elementary and middle school teacher from New Jersey. Um, my teaching and scholarship here in Indiana focus on critical literacy, which is analyzing different kinds of texts, you know, written text, visual text, multimedia, um, and questioning attitudes, values, beliefs, and practices, including our own, to help advance more kind of justice-oriented experiences or outcomes. Um, I currently teach in the area of content literacy or disciplinary literacy, so I work with future teachers and emphasize how they can help their future students become more strategic and successful readers and writers in any content area. And that includes social studies. And I particularly enjoy working with future social studies teachers because social studies is inherently multidisciplinary, as you both know, encompassing history, economics, psychology, sociology, geography, anthropology, political science, et cetera. And the content in social studies, you know, includes grappling with complex problems and issues, you know, like big topics of globalization, colonization, slavery, war, peace, um, as well as kind of particular policy proposals and so forth. And so this content emphasis in social studies means it's important you know, to do our best as educators to understand social, political, and historical events. And for me, there's always an abiding emphasis on justice, you know, and addressing injustices. So, which is really the foundation of our, our book project, which is called Commemorative Literacies and Labors of Justice, which is to understand how people commemorate the past with particular conceptions of justice in mind. And if only all the literacy people got us like James gets us, he gets social studies. <laughs> of course, I'm, I actually met James at a social studies conference, so he, he has delved into the field. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. And so my name is Lauren Leibarger, and I am a professor in the Department of Classics and Religious Studies at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And I have been an educator for almost 35 years now. I began as a secondary school English as a second language foreign language teacher in the occupied Palestinian territories in the West Bank in the town of Beit Jala, just south of Jerusalem. Was there during the first Palestinian uprising and then stayed for seven years in the Middle East. Taught English in Egypt at the American University in Cairo and then ran an English language program for Palestinians in the Gaza Strip for a couple of years before embarking on a new career as a religious studies scholar and ended up going back to uh, the West Bank and writing, doing research for my first book on Palestinian identity and religion, and then uh, continued that line of research uh, focusing on Palestinians in Chicago, the Palestinian uh, diaspora community in the city of Chicago. In the context of all that, had a chance to um, have conversations with James who invited me into thinking about some of this work that he had started to do on Argentina back, I think it was in 2006, right, James, for the 30th anniversary of the commemoration of the beginning of the period of state terror. So James and I walked through some of the photographs that he had taken and ended up writing an article looking at kind of responsibilities that we incurred as outsiders to the historical experiences of other groups of people, other nations, and thinking through the ethics around that um, and how to how to go about the act of interpreting as outsiders. And building on that, the idea of going back in 2016 for the 40th anniversary developed between the two of us, and James led a group of us, a team of researchers there. So this is just been such a generous experience for me to work across disciplines here. 
and expand my range of thinking. With respect to commemoration, this is at the very center of what we do in religious studies. And of course, my experience in Jerusalem with the contested site of the Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount, really taught me quite a bit about how commemoration can be, as I say, a site of contestation, which is certainly the case in Argentina when it comes to the memory of the period of state terror. Hi, and I'm Eddie uh, Brudney. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And I actually got my PhD in history from Indiana University, which is how I came to the project. I was not part of the original research trip down in 2016, but I was contacted by James afterwards to help make sense of some of that data because my area of focus is on 20th century Argentine history. So I work on labor and legal history in Argentina, specifically in the 1960s and 1970s. And what really attracted me about the project and, and sort of what I think was interesting about the experience was thinking about this, again, concept of commemoration, but from the lens of the historians. So something about the relationship between the past and the present and how those things are constructed and reconstructed was, was very interesting to me. And it was, as Lauren said, a very cool experience to see that same thing through different lenses, through this literacy lens, religious studies lens. And I feel like it ended up being a pretty educational and fulfilling experience. Yeah. Isn't it great when you are able to bring together people from different fields, you just learn so much from each other. Um, I know at our, my university, they, they would have these, these mixer events where they wanted people to just like kind of randomly come together and pick projects, which it's not that easy. Those never seem to work, but I was fortunate years ago to um, start working with a colleague in, in um, communication studies who focuses on educational rhetoric. And we started working and we were just able to teach each other so much. So this is really cool the way you are all able to come together, which we've been teasing it. And I think now we should go ahead and, and say, so what we're here to discuss is a book that you all authored and the larger project that came about. And so the book is titled Commemorative Literacies and Labors of Justice, Resistance, Reconciliation and Recovery in Buenos Aires and Beyond. And so this came out in the very end of 2021, according to the publication date on Rutledge. And of course, the, the book, if you're uh, interested, it will be linked in the show notes. So can you tell us about this larger project and give us the context and story about what you learned and took away from it? Sure. Yeah, I'll start, Dan. As Lauren indicated, you know, we took a team of, of people down to Buenos Aires in late March of 2016. That included four graduate students, three professors, and a documentary filmmaker. It was a 10-day expedition to cover the commemorative events tied to the 40th year anniversary of the military coup that began on March 24th, 1976, which launched a period of state terrorism that lasted seven years into 1983. And during that time, thousands of Argentines who were considered subversives were disappeared tortured, killed. And this included many university educators and students, as well as some prominent uh, religious figures. And in 2006, 10 years earlier, March 24th became an official national holiday. Uh, the translation would be the Day of Memory, Truth, and Justice. So our goal was to try to understand the commemorative, commemorative events at different sites in Buenos Aires that had particular historical significance. Uh, these were two university spaces where faculty and students were disappeared during the dictatorship, um, a Catholic church, as well as a, a former detention center and now a, a current museum. So as a team, we were there for the 10 days. It was an intensive 10 days and lots of interviews with educators and scholars and leaders of organizations. And, and a lot of time in these three sites, which became the real focus of the project, rather than this being completely driven by interviews and, and our observations, a lot of the time we spent in the sites to try to understand how, what's happening in each, in each of those sites in terms of the memory practices in each. So um, that led us to make uh, you know, our, some main arguments of the book. We really came to understand how particular kinds of commemorative practices or commemorative literacies. These are the ways that people are trying to understand what's happening in those moments, those practices or literacies. They're addressing these historical injustices by repurposing the past to address present day you know, political needs. We saw that. Um, and these commemor commemorative liter literacies uh, enacted 
different kinds of just, justice work, what we called labors of justice. We saw the justice as uh, resistance. We saw evidence of justice as reconciliation and justice as recovery. And uh, that justice work across these three sites, you know, the university, the church, and the museum, that we saw also that work resonating transnationally. So it wasn't just about Argent Argentine past, but how they, the practices in these spaces were making these connections to these other places around the world. Now, and I apologize because I feel like sometimes, particularly in, in areas that I don't know too much about, my my main history comes from a musical. And again, I apologize full heartily for this. So I know that, do you mind telling us a little bit about the, the context, a little bit of the background of the event? I was obviously, I was alluding to Evita, which I, yeah. Um, and so which, is, just... which is not irrelevant, actually, right? That does help to explain a little bit of what's going on here. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Michael so... breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> I got very nervous for a moment. Thank you. No, no, not at all. That's I, I use it in my classes sometimes to help to explain 20th century Argentine history. So I think it's actually a good resource. In this case, I think that the place to start would be with Juan Perón, who becomes president of Argentina in the 1940s. His second wife, Eva Perón Evita, is an icon alongside him. And the two of them are incredibly popular. And they manage to sort of transform Argentine society and bring in a lot of sectors of Argentine society that had previously been on the outs. So poor people, laborers, workers, folks who had been marginalized. And this upsets the traditional balance of powers in Argentina. It upsets the conservative elite. And so for the next 30 plus years, arguably up to the present, in fact, Peronism is still very much the largest political movement in Argentina today. The fight has been between Peronists, those who supported Juan Perón and his vision, and anti-Peronists, those who uh, opposed him for one or another reason. And so there are a kind of convoluted series of twists and turns in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s that involve multiple coups, multiple military dictatorships. But Perón, after 18 years in exile, does come back in 1973, and he's re-elected president. And this time he's accompanied by his third wife, Isabel Perón. Evita had tragically passed a couple decades earlier. But Perón at this point is a pretty old man. And so he actually dies in office about a year after being re-elected, leaving his wife, who he had named as his vice president in charge. This is now 1974. And she is not a particularly capable politician. I think it would be fair to say this is a position that's would be difficult for anyone, but she was not able to handle the responsibility. And a worsening situation, economic, social, political, led to yet another military coup, which James alluded to, uh, this coup of March 24th, 1976, which inaugurated the most recent military dictatorship in Argentina, the process of national reorganization, which is the name that they gave to it. And this is the dictatorship that oversaw a period of state terror that resulted in as many as 30,000 30, deaths of civilians, tortured, murdered, kidnapped, disappeared. When the military government finally cedes power in 1983 and democracy returns, the question becomes, how is Argentine society going to grapple with this tremendous horror that everyone's just lived through, right? All of this violence, all of this uh, repression. And so since 1983, we're actually coming up on the 40th anniversary of the return of democracy this year. So this happens in December of 1983. The question in Argentina has been, how do we cope with this period of state terror? How do we create meaning from this? How do we remember it? And there have been a, a series of answers. So the initial answer was a limited attempt to hold responsible those who perpetrated these crimes. This was in the 1980s. In the 1990s, that was sort of rolled back and there were mass pardons issued to all of those who were involved in the violence. And then in the 2000s, there was another big shift. And I think this is the most relevant for our project. When uh, Nestor Kirchner, who was the Peronist candidate, became president in 2003 and pushed, along with his wife, Christina, an agenda that really focused on human rights and justice work. And so James mentioned earlier the creation of a national holiday in 2006, the National Day of truth, memory, and justice. And that was an initiative of the Kirchners. But even once they were in power, 
and they held the presidency between the two of them from 2003 to 2015, there was still a lot of contestation around how we think about the dictatorship. There were multiple competing memories. And so a lot of what we work with in the book is the then present day manifestations in 2016 of some of those debates around memory, right? How do we uh, commemorate? How do we remember everything that happened? Was there some inspiration or informing that took place from South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Com uh, Commission and how they thought about this memory? Or is this something that's like my best uh, point of context, context for how a nation is, has dealt with this, and in that case, apartheid? Is that like a were lessons learned from that? Was it similar or different? So that's a really interesting case. It's actually the reverse because the first trials in Argentina were held in 1985 and 1986. Oh. And so the South African Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission learned some lessons from the Argentine case and ended up pushing it further and in different directions and pushed a different kind of post-conflict justice framework. But the Argentine case inspired some of what went on in South Africa in that first phase in the 1980s. In the 1990s, when that was rolled back and there was a sort of culture under then President Menem of forgetting, and the word that was often thrown around at that point is reconciliation, which we use in a different context in the book, uh, which Lauren maybe will speak to a little bit later. And so that idea of reconciliation became associated in Argentina with the forgive and forget attitude of the 1990s, as opposed to the justice work of the 2000s and 2010s. A culture of forgetting doesn't seem like a, a good culture. <laughs> I feel like It'd it's not a good descriptor. Right, right. And right. and also and also for human rights abuses. <laughs> I would just maybe jump in here real briefly and observe that we had an interaction with the priest at the Church of Santa Cruz, which was one of the sites that we focused on in our book. And he was reflecting on South Africa and so there was a kind of way in which, at least in that moment, we saw South Africa emerge as a point of contrast, right? So there was a kind of learning from South Africa or thinking about South Africa, Argentine experience in relationship to South Africa. And he said, in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission offered less punishment in exchange for truthful statements. Therefore, we can say that as a result, there was a lot more revelation of the crimes. They opted for that kind of justice. For us in Argentina, we, we remained so closed and secret, so hidden, everything that was done, the archives occurred. So we opted for another kind of justice, judging the crimes. But because so little was actually revealed, very few were equally judged and condemned, and the church did not actively participate as in South Africa. In South Africa, the participation of the bishops, whether Catholics or other Christian confessions, was very important, very good. But in Argentina, that theme of reconciliation cannot happen because of the secrecy which remains very great surrounding the past. Wow. That, I mean, it's a profound challenge, right? Of course. And so, so I'd love to hear more about what this visit was like and what you all learned from it. Um, I do have one kind of technical question. How, how did this come How were you able to take a group down here? I think we, we have a lot of like, you know, academics and educators who would love to know, like, how can you take meaningful trips like this? How, how did you organize it? And then please tell us like, what was the rest of the experience like? And what did you learn in those 10 days? Yeah, in terms of getting it off the ground, I was able to secure some grant funding, got support here from Indiana University to, to take the team down there. And, and we found a way to do it. I don't recall the, I mean, it wasn't that expensive. It was definitely manageable and appreciative of the support. Fortunately, we had several students who were bilingual and two native speakers of Spanish. So my Spanish Got us, got me by a little bit, but not not enough. Lauren speaks Spanish and so forth, so it was a priority to, to find some native speakers who can help navigate certain contexts and interviews. And these were several graduate students who were really excited about the project and wanted to participate, and it just came together. So, in terms of of the work while we were there, you know, part of of the benefit of having eight people as a team is that we were able to really immerse ourselves in these spaces. And we did decide that we were, we identified a few of these sites ahead of time through contacts. And we had one, uh, one of our colleagues who was a professor up at DePaul University. Her name is Liliana. And uh, the project wouldn't have happened without her. She grew up in the neighborhood of where that church is and still friends with the, 
the priest at that time and uh, was able to to set up some interviews and connections and experiences for us so with Liliana's help you know we navigated several of these sites and we identified three you know this the university site and the church as well as the museum space all as places where we knew commemorations were happening these were not necessarily representative of all sites in Argentina these three sites had a particular stance in opposition clearly to the the dictatorship and uh, very justice oriented spaces so there were, were people in Argentina who uh, were supported the dictatorship or at least did not oppose it so these were three sites that were in direct opposition to the dictatorship and uh, I'll talk a little bit about the university site in particular was uh, one I had visited 10 years earlier when I was in Buenos Aires for a conference and that's uh, where I was particularly taken by the level of uh, enthusiasm activism energy around commemoration at that time they were commemorating the 30 year anniversary so I knew I wanted to go back to that site and to see what was happening uh, 10 years later for the 40th anniversary and what we saw there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of posters and signs and banners across the university spaces and the classrooms outside in the hallways that were uh, mobilizing memories of the past you know citing the 40-year anniversary and the coup and the dictatorship uh, but there were they had present-day concerns or issues that they were addressing and uh, in particular we saw a theme of resistance emerging a resistance to current instantiations of state repression impunity of leaders um, and there was really clear resistance to economic policies of the then president president macri and those policies included you know argentina's dependence on the international monetary fund and its relationship with the united states so really really clear evidence of uh, resistance to those policies and, and practices that were happening in the, in the current moment so we identified this as a labor of justice um, and named it as resistance you can tell us about some of the other sites too yeah, sure. So a second site that we chose to examine was the Church of Santa Cruz. And uh, uh, James mentioned that one of our um, participants, um, one of our fellow researchers, Liliana, was from the neighborhood of this church, grew up in the neighborhood, and was a good friend, a childhood friend of the priest, who, after our um, research came to a close, uh, unfortunately died, passed away from cancer, I believe, and we ended up dedicating the book to him, Father Francisco. The church, Santo Cruz, we, we um, found to be extremely compelling for a number of reasons. Perhaps the main reason was that it was a focal point during the period of state terror for some of the repression uh, that occurred. And I'll talk about a, a little bit about why that was the case. But to back up a little bit, for me, I guess, you know, when I, as a religious studies scholar entering into this project, one of the things that I found really compelling was in our discussions was this connection between ritual practice or liturgy in the broadest sense and memory. And this was a kind of leitmotif or theme running throughout the book, but really came to the fore for us in this particular site at, at the Church of Santa Cruz. So we saw ritual and memory intertwining to generate kind of a type of embodied commemorative literacy. This idea of embodied commemorative literacy, um, as I said, was a kind of theme and came really to the forefront here in the church. And as we began to sort of think about this and, and, and experience um, what we were observing and participating in at the church, we began to center in on the idea of reconciliation. Now, this idea of reconciliation, this theme of labors of justice as reconciliation, as we dealt with it in the context of the church, and what we observed there is controversial in Argentina. And for the reasons that Eddie was referring to um, during the 1990s, when there was this period of pardons given to participants, perpetrators of the, of the terror, and a real emphasis on kind of forgive and forget, uh, an emphasis of the church itself, some of the traditionalist uh, elements within the church itself promoted. So I believe on December 19th, 1982, a 
Day of National Reconciliation was held with the support of the church hierarchy, uh, the traditionalist elements within the church hierarchy, sort of signaling this desire to, to move on. And for this reason, this idea of reconciliation uh, remains extremely controversial. But it emerged as a, a really powerful theme in our interactions with the church for a number of different reasons. And so one, one of the things that uh, I think that needs to be sort of borne in mind for uh, your listeners, maybe, is that reconciliation is really central to Catholicism. And the you know one of the central you know embodied liturgies uh, within Catholicism entails you know confession and uh, acts of penance uh, as part of what is called the ritual of reconciliation. So it's not surprising to us, right? It shouldn't be surprising to us that reconciliation would be something that would emerge within the context of a, a Catholic church, right? But this was a Catholic church that was also aligned with a very particular strain of Catholicism in Argentina, what we, following Gustavo Moreo, uh, referred to as committed Catholicism, in contrast with kind of the traditionalist Catholicism that dominated the church hierarchy, as well as another kind of part of the institutional institution of the church that really wanted to, to try to find a middle ground between um, resisting the dictatorship, but also maintaining ties with political power. The committed Catholics, however, were much more in the vein of, you might have heard of liberation theology, of a kind of radical Catholicism that saw you know, true Christianity as involving an act of solidarity with the poor, what liberation theologians call the option for the poor and the oppressed. And in Argentina, this took a very particular form. Um, but at this church, which, as I said, was a focal point of the repression of the military, this uh, church had very, was very much situated within this kind of committed Catholic uh, ethos. Twelve of its members during the period of state terror were disappeared, including two Catholic nuns from, from France. And some of the bodies of these disappeared ended up washed up on the shores, the Argentine shores, and um, were eventually identified and then interred on the grounds of the church itself. And so their graves are there as a kind of memorial. So very powerful. And every uh, year, the church commemorates uh, the dead in a refusal to forgive and forget, which is quite interesting, right? Because, you know, in this chapter, we're sort of centering this idea of reconciliation. So what is this reconciliation in the context of a committed Catholicism that is very much aligned with that part of, of Argentine politics and memory that refuses to forgive and forget, right? And resistance to the whole call to, to reconcile. What does this mean? And I think the best way maybe to think about this is in, in terms of a kind of concept of qualified reconciliation. So what, is, what does that mean? What did that look like? So when we think about qualified reconciliation at, at Santa Cruz, well, I, I, my mind goes immediately to a liturgy ritual that we participated in, James and I participated in, during the uh, church's own 40th um, anniversary commemoration event. And it was not something that we anticipated. It was something that happened sort of spontaneously. That, of course, Father Francisco knew that this liturgy or this um, ritual would occur. But we, James and I, did not anticipate it. And what it involved was um, standing together as a group of gathered people and being directed by Father Francisco to pair up and then to process through the church together, right? And to sort of unburden ourselves, speak from the heart to one another about what the meaning of this time, um, what it meant to us, right? And I was paired with a young woman who as we began to walk, began to really speak intensely to me about her anger about the United States. And it was interesting as we thought about it later, you know, she, you know, maybe had been born during the period of state terror, maybe did not have a direct memory of it. But really for her, the most profound and important political memories come at the beginning of the turn of the century, of the 21st century, as Argentina is undergoing a profound economic catastrophe linked to uh, the IMF and the World Bank and policies that the United States was very much involved with supporting. Um, so her connection of the United States to the suffering of Argentina was very much in that context. But, but, but in this particular moment, in the 40th anniversary of the commemoration of the period of state terror, she was expressing this anger and connecting it to this memory uh, of, of, of the military dictatorship. Um, so uh, at the end of the um, 
processing, uh, Father Francisco passed around a microphone and um, my partner actually took it and spoke to uh, the entire group about how, what this meant to her, uh, this, this chance to speak to me as a, an American uh, to express her, her feelings, her frustrations. And, and then at that point, Father Francisco kind of reflected on that and the importance of remembering as a way to begin to move forward. Later, as we were writing the book, uh, really struggling to try to understand and interpret what had taken place, we came to an understanding that this was not a ritual of forgiveness, uh, per se, or of absolution, but rather it worked toward acknowledgement and repentance and the possibility maybe of individual healing in relationship to, to the past. And it is in this sense that Santa Cruz provided a kind of qualified reconciliation, right? This was not a forgiving and forgetting. This was very much a remembering. And there was no absolution given at the end of it, right? There was no forgiving. Um, but there was a kind of together across the generations and, um, and through this act of remembrance of injustice and an acknowledgement of complicity in that injustice, even though, you know, the United States had never invaded or occupied and uh, intervened militarily in Argentina, but very much had been involved in training Argentine military personnel at the School of the Americas, the infamous School of the Americas. And like I said, played a very powerful role in the international economic order that had determined Argentina's fate um, in this, with the start of the 21st century. So perhaps in this very small way, in this, in this moment here in the Church of Santa Cruz, there was a kind of laying of ground for a potential healing of relationships, if not for uh, any sort of absolution or reconciliation. I have a lot to say about that's an incredible story and to, it does make us reflect on, you know, the U.S. role in the world, which we hear about, but it's also very easy as, as U.S. citizens to forget about, right? How profound the U.S. influence can be. Can we, let's, can we hear about the, the third site? Yeah, absolutely. So the third site that we chose as one of these spaces in which labors of justice were being carried out was a former clandestine detention center, essentially a former concentration camp that had been run by the military dictatorship from 1976 to 1983. And it was housed on the grounds of the Naval Mechanics School, so a school for petty officers in the Argentine Navy. But in one of these buildings, Argentine civilians who had been kidnapped by the security forces were housed and tortured and eventually murdered over the course of many, many years. And so it's estimated that at this school, which was known as the Naval Mechanics Superior School, or in Spanish, it's known by its acronym, which is the ESMA, that at the ESMA, as many as 5,000 people passed through during the dictatorship, the vast majority of whom were either found dead or never found at all, remain among the disappeared to this day. After the dictatorship, after democracy returned in 1983, the school actually continued to function. So even though it had been this site of terror and violence, it remained in the hands of the Navy for the next 15 years until the late 1990s, at which point it was given back to the Argentine government. And there ensued a really fierce debate about what to do with it. So going back to these questions around memory and how we remember that we've been bringing up, at that point in Argentina in 1998, the president was Carlos Menem, who had been the author of those pardons, who had been the one pushing a particular forgive and forget reconciliatory agenda toward the crimes that had been committed in the 1970s and 1980s. And his idea for this school was to demolish it, to level it, and to build an empty space that would be a sort of space of reconciliation, I think might have been exactly what it was called. This created a lot of uproar, a lot of backlash, and so Argentine citizens actually banded together to preserve the site as the memory space. And over the years, through various iterations, it became a site that is now a dedicated space for memory. As James mentioned, it houses a museum, but it also houses the archives of most of the prominent human rights organizations in Argentina, as well as their headquarters. And so it is really the epicenter now of the human rights and justice work efforts in Argentina. And so we titled this chapter Labors of Justice as Recovery because in one sense, we're talking about the recovery of physical space, the repurposing of physical space by these human rights organizations to use the very spaces that were the sites of torture now as the grounds to seek justice, right? But there was another element of recovery here. Recovery obviously has two meanings in English as it does in Spanish. There's also a sort of individual meaning of recovery. And one of the things that we encountered at the Exesma was an art exhibit by Liliana's cousin, 
an artist named Nicolas Arue, who had put together a multimedia presentation based around his own experience. His father and mother had both been kidnapped by state security forces, and his father actually remained disappeared. And so he had grown up not knowing his parents. And this exhibit was his attempt to sort of make sense of that experience, to recover in some sense from the emotional trauma that he had suffered as a result of this long period of state terrorism. And the ESMA does host things like that. It is a space for those kinds of exhibits. There are concerts and films and art installations that aim at making sense of, that aim at coming to terms with the repression and the violence that Argentines encountered during the 1970s and 1980s. And so the ex-ESMA as a space of recovery functioned on these multiple levels. There was recovery as a project of individual healing. There was recovery as sort of repurposing of that space as the headquarters of these human rights organizations. And then there was the recovery in the kind of most literal sense, the taking of space from the repressors for those who were pursuing this work of justice and human rights. This entire discussion, of course, makes me reflect on a lot of the the things you know that we think about, and of course, the U.S. has a has a, a, a you know which a lot of our audience are are you know um, U.S. citizens or live in the U.S. or familiar with it will think about like how we have tried to deal with our past. And of course, these things came up after in the George Floyd protests about you know which figures and are are put up as monuments in our society. I read a, a recent Washington Post article just a few days ago by Dante Stewart that I'll include in the show notes, where he talked about why he took his family to the Legacy Museum, which is the done by the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, and how infor, important it was for his family. And so I think about, of course, reconciliation. There's there's these types of historical atrocities that have happened the world over, and they've also happened in our backyard, of course. And so it has me reflecting both on how little I've maybe spent my time thinking about the global ones, especially the ones that the U.S. can have have had a hand in, and then also how much I still have to wrestle with the local ones, right? Local in my community or in or in the nation. And so it leaves me thinking with, you know, what what can educators in particular, which is which is our you know primary audience here, what can they make of what to learn from your book? Because this all just feels so educational, right? That it feels like it's delving into the most important things that we have to deal with in social studies and literacy classes and just in school in general. So what advice do you have for educators? Yeah, we really thought a lot about that, that question, Dan, especially in the last chapter and thinking about implications for this kind of work. And it, it strikes us as, as important to consider the implications when it comes to, you know, any type of commemorative event, whether it's happening in the U.S. or other places, you know, if there's a commemoration you know, uh, in terms of curriculum, we kind of drill down to that that level. It's when I think of um, you know questions to ask. If there's a commemorative event, uh, people are, are remembering the past for any particular reason. We can just start with those basic questions like who's being commemorated, what's being commemorated, when and where is this commemoration practices or events taking place? Why is a person, event, or time period being commemorated? And then we can more fully engage with the, the how question, like how is a person, event, or time period being commemorated? Um, you know, what are people saying or writing or posting on social media? These are the practices or what we call the commemorative literacies um, that we can explore. So, um, and the example we take up in the book is, you know, the national holiday in, in January here in the U.S., which is Dr. MLK Day. And we can think about the events and the practices that happened on that day, again, how people are making sense of his life and his legacy and what that means each MLK day. And so we can ask, you know, with the labors of justice framework in mind, we can say, do we see any examples or evidence of justice as resistance, for example, during MLK day events? And, you know, in what ways is the memory of Dr. King being mobilized to, you know, perhaps oppose or dismantle you know, contemporary racist or discriminatory policies and practices. You know, we, we might see uh, and hear people linking the memory of Dr. King on that day to uh, the opposition to mass incarceration of people of color, for example, you know, what Michelle Alexander has called the new Jim Crow. We're actually likely to see the memory of Dr. King invoked, whether it's in protests against police brutality and violence that disproportionately affect uh, communities of color. And the leadership of, of people like you know, William, William Barber with the Poor People's Campaign, 
you know, perhaps best exemplifies a, a present day continuation of Dr. King's justice work as resistance to racial and economic repression. And we can ask, you know, with the lens of justice's reconciliation, do we see any examples of that during MLK Day events? You know, and again, this in part ties to Dr. King's life as a preacher and appeals to theological views, uh, radical rec reconciliation, for example, this idea that uh, social justice and reconciliation are two sides of the same coin. And in the book, we talk a little bit about, you know, reconciliation work when it comes to MLK Day is an opportunity to reconcile conflicting narratives about the legacy of, legacies of slavery in the United States and and the importance of confronting denial of racism and, and the importance of other truth-seeking efforts. And, and again, we could see the you know, justice as reconciliation and justice as resistance kind of working in tandem in that sense. And finally, we can, we can explore questions about, do we see justice as recovery when we're looking at MLK Day commemorations? One manifestation of that could be calls for you know, reparations for African-Americans, uh, recover vast amounts of you know, wealth for present-day ancestors of, of slaves who created much of that wealth. Justice as recovery on MLK Day also could be seen through a lens of the need to recover basic voting rights you know, amidst particular widespread voter suppression efforts uh, within recent years. So we think the, this idea of labors of justice, that if we have a justice lens, let's explore what are these different facets of justice and re resistance, reconciliation, recovery, or uh, we think are, are three really robust ways to, to explore that. I think too, you know, that there is something that we wanted to convey here, and maybe that might be of some inspiration or, or help in for, for social studies teachers. And that's kind of a method or a commemorative ethics, we call it, uh, or possibly also a method of making transnational connections, right? So beginning with those questions that James outlined uh, and really sort of drilling into the meanings of, you know, spaces and events that are of local importance. I think, Michael or Dan, you might have mentioned, you know, sort of being very focused on on the local, on what what's local, right? And but but to also sort of be attentive to, you know, the possible transnational res resonances. But we have to be careful here, right? You know, not to make sort of easy expressions of solidarity or to presume, right, to be able to conclude about other places based on what we know um, of our own local history. And so, you know, we we speak in the, toward the end of the book about you know the necessity of careful attention to locality and specificity, so that we can ground our transnational comparisons and solidarities in deep empirical ways, right? So, one of the things that that was kind of a a, a point of revelation, maybe um, if I can use a religious word, at the Church of Santa Cruz was was this sort of very interesting iconographic representation of Martin Luther King who appeared among some other sort of images in a sort of Greek Orthodox iconographic style. And he appears, you know, right above an image of Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was assassinated in El Salvador and was recently canonized, I believe, by the church. And here at the Church of Santa Cruz, right, they are making a, a transnational connection, you know, with the memory of Martin Luther King, within the context, right, of a church that has dedicated itself to the commemoration of the disappeared and in that period of, of state terror. And so we see kind of memory work occurring in a very local context and new meaning being given to a figure who is of great uh, importance and significance to all of us in the United States. And so this is sort of one example in, of, of how these kinds of transnational connections can be made uh, through a kind of exploration of the histories and experiences of other places and other people. So thank you all three for, for really walking us through this incredible project and this book, which, which obviously was a commitment of conscience and, and a real commitment to scholarship and understanding these complex issues that I think are important to take up in classrooms too. And so again, as a reminder, the book is Commemorative Literacies and Labors of Justice, Resistance, Reconciliation, and Recovery in Buenos Aires and Beyond. 
And um, you can find that in our show notes or on the Rutledge site or probably on all the other sites where you can buy books. Any, any kind of final thoughts as you just reflect on this project? Yeah, so I just want to say thanks, uh, Dan and, and Michael, for providing this opportunity for us to, to talk about the work. I know for me, the a real highlight of this project has been the opportunity to work and learn alongside Lauren and Eddie. I have a deep admiration for both of them as scholars and as people, and also really so grateful for, again, the team that we, we had in Argentina, uh, led again by Liliana Zecker, uh, Professor DePaul University, and the grad students included Alex Panos and Suryata Abbas and Nasiel Vasquez and Jessalana Stewart, uh, along with uh, Paul Abowd. So I'll just, I'll always be grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. That's awesome. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can our listeners find you or your uh, work online? I know we can get the book at the Rutledge site and anywhere you get books, but where else can we find you? You have social media accounts or would you recommend people to your um, academic pages? How, how can we learn more about the work you all are doing? Yeah, there's links to my work in our university web webpage at Indiana University, the School of Education for me. I'm sporadically on Twitter, not a whole lot. I've also launched a, a website called denialtojustice.com that focuses more on recent work around climate change and climate justice. Uh, but there's similar ideas there related to transitioning from uh, how we confront denial to advancing justice. I just put my faculty webpage link in the chat, and I can uh, put a couple of other links to a couple of books I've written about the Middle East. Yeah, I am also sporadically on Twitter trying to get better about using that as a means of connection, but my research is on Google Scholar and on my faculty site through the University of Tennessee Chattanooga. So things that I've written are available there. Thank you so much. We will be sure to link all those sites you mentioned in our show notes. And we appreciate all the work you're doing. We certainly look to keep discussing it on platforms, maybe Twitter, if that still exists when you're listening to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. Now, at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, maybe you want to chat about this uh, this episode, hit us up. We're on Twitter at Visions of Ed. We're also apparently on Facebook. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and like the, their book anywhere you'd like us to be. <laughs> and if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. Um, there's been a bit of a culture of forgetting around putting five-star reviews on, but that means a lot to us. So please go ahead, put that five-star review. You can still find me on Twitter. I don't know how much longer. My name is at Dan Kretka. And uh, yeah, I'm around too sometimes. In person. In Until person. Next, and anywhere you want me to be. Although typically here in my basement. And thank you to Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.